If you've uh, closed your Bible since our last reading, I invite you to turn back with me to John chapter 19. That's 851 in the Pew Bible. Gospel according to John chapter 19. And we will set our hearts and minds on verses 1 through 42. And again, this will also be the subject of the uh, sermon here in just a few minutes. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 42. Open your hearts now to receive the holy and inspired word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. 
but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit to see wonderful things in this word. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who with you in the Holy Spirit is one God, forever blessed. Amen. Whether you've been a believer for most of your life, or you are new to the idea of the Christian faith, it is hard to ignore the cross. It's hard to ignore it. It's a symbol known all over the world, and for 2,000 years. And even prior to that, it was known simply as a dreadful piece of torture and and, uh, death. But now, especially in light of Christ's own crucifixion, it remains one of the most recognizable, one of the most powerful symbols in all the world. But what is its message? 
What does the cross actually say? What does it communicate to us? Tonight we're going to consider two answers to that question. There are many answers. The cross says many things. But two answers tonight from our meditations in the Gospel of John. The cross tells us something about who we are. And it tells us something about who Jesus is. There are several entry points for us in these chapters that we've read tonight, John chapter 18 and 19, in order for us to enter in as readers and to recognize who we identify with in the story. And in these ways, the cross helps us to see who we are. The, the, the behavior and the posture and the words of the characters in this story help us to see our own role in the death of the Son of God. For instance, like the Jewish leaders, we are self-righteous. We are self-righteous. When the Gospel of John talks about the Jews, by and large it's referring to the Jewish religious elite. Not just any any lay person or or Joe Schmo, but the Jewish elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, or perhaps uh, those who were part of the temple guard. Sometimes it's not even clear. It's referring to a crowd of, of Jewish elites. And here we see several of these religious elites. In chapter 18, verses 28 and 29, the leaders of the Jewish council, which is called the Sanhedrin, take Jesus to see the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But we read, they themselves did not enter so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. It's an interesting little tidbit to help us understand the mind of the Jews at this point in the first century. The Passover festival was just about to happen, one, one high day of a feast, and then a week for the festival of the unleavened bread, all kind of conceived of as the great Passover festival. This was about to happen. And of all people, these particular Jews would not want to be taken out of that festival by defiling themselves. So they wouldn't step in, in, the, uh, in the home of a non-Jew. They didn't want to step into the home of a Gentile for fear that something in there might defile them ceremonially. Might make them ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover. It's all very pious, very devout. But of course, the problem is that it's all fake. It's a fake piety. It's not true religious devotion toward the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How do we know this? Well, we know this because these same men, the very same men, who are so scrupulous about these particular parts of their law, are the same ones who are breaking one commandment after another knowingly in the trial and the execution of Jesus. By design, they are, they are bearing false witness. By design, they're manipulating the Roman governor. They're complicit in the murder of the Son of God. It's a false kind of piety. We call that self-righteousness. It is to do the things of righteousness and religiousness on the outside, but on the inside to be far from God. That's the indictment of the, of the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before these events happen. These people are close to me with their lips, but in their hearts they're far from me. They're far from me. 
to one degree or another, everyone knows, everyone without exception knows in their hearts that there is a God to whom they must answer. Everyone knows this. That's why Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's utter foolishness to to say that because we know it. We know it to be true that there is a God. The problem is that some of us think that we can impress this God with our own piety. Gain his favor somehow by external acts. Win him over, showing him how, how good we are. But like these, these Jewish elite here, the cross exposes us. There's nowhere to hide under the cross of Jesus Christ. It, because it depicts what our self-righteousness actually gets us. It, it proclaims to us what our self-righteousness actually deserves. Death. That's what self-righteousness actually earns. And it deserves death because self-righteousness is just one more way that we think more highly of ourselves than of the God who is truly righteous. This is why it can be very hard for very devout religious people to recognize that they are sinners. Because self-righteousness looks so good. Just like it felt good for these folks here in, in John 18 to stay out of the, the praetorium, out of, uh, out of Pilate's headquarters, because they wanted to be pious Jews and, and fulfill in this way a certain part of their ceremonial laws. Feels good. Feels good to reap the benefits, to be able to go and eat the Passover meal. But it's fake. It's self-righteousness. And it is that same corruption which we all face. We all want to look righteous before God in our own way. On our own terms. Like Adam and Eve before us. Wanting to be like God. That's okay. That's great to be like God. But wanting to be like God on your own terms. Take of the fruit that that, uh, you were told not to take. That's something different altogether. It's looking righteous in disobedience. It's fake. And only God himself is the truly righteous one. And the cross exposes us as those who struggle deeply with the corruption of self-righteousness. Well, these Jewish elite not only tell us something about ourselves, but also the criminals in the story. Those on the other end of the spectrum. Like the criminals, we are also rebellious. We struggle both with self-righteousness and we struggle with rebellion. And it will indeed, brothers and sisters, lead to our condemnation, if not turned from. In chapter 18, verses 38 through 40, Pilate reminds the crowd that it's customary to release a prisoner during the Passover. But instead of calling for Jesus' release, the crowd actually asks for Barabbas. Um, I've been reading from the ESV this evening, and it says that Barabbas was a robber. And you'll see there, if you have uh, the same edition that I have, a footnote that says uh, insurrectionist is is more uh, accurate. Insurrectionist. Barabbas would have been one of many Jews in this day who would have tried to lead some kind of a rebellion against the Roman authorities. This was a violent criminal 
Perhaps he was robbing and stealing, taking what, what didn't belong to him. But, but more accurately, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. The Roman government knew it. And so did the Jews. And they cry out for him to be released instead of Jesus. Beyond this, when Jesus is crucified, he's joined on his left and on his right by two known criminals as well. And through these shocking displays, the cross teaches us that Jesus, Jesus has allowed himself to be identified with rebels. He's not only being treated in this, in this passion narrative. He's not only being treated like a dangerous criminal. He is literally standing in the place of criminals. Being traded in for Barabbas. Whether or not we are guilty of civil rebellion, more serious crimes like these men, we're, we are all guilty of a worse rebellion. All humankind has been created by God. That same God whom the angels cry out as holy, holy, holy. Because he's the triune God, you see. And instead of bowing before this all-holy, sovereign king of the universe, instead of coming in trembling fear and in love and in fealty, we say, I think I've got this figured out better than you do. Your laws are too strict. What you demand in worship is not fun. I don't like what you have for me. I don't like your ethics. It's backwards, God. Therefore, I'm going to go my own way. In this life, in this life, the consequences for rebellion against God can go either way, which this narrative teaches us. Again, we're talking about this life. In this temporal life, you might go free like Barabbas. Uh, It may catch up to you like the criminals being crucified next to Jesus. But the message of the cross is that eventually... In the great courtroom of God and at his tribunal, your rebellion against him will catch up to you. The terrible cross of Golgotha displays for us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And it's the same end as self-righteousness because all of it is sin and rebellion. One of it just dresses itself up and looks nice. The self-righteousness does. Rebellion seems a little easier to see. But both of them are sin before the all-holy God. And both of them will lead to death. Loved ones in Christ, the cross tells you some pretty unpleasant things about yourself. Uh, It tells you that you're self-righteous. It tells you that you are rebellious. And that both of these things lead to death. But blessedly, the cross also tells us something about who Jesus is. And just like with us, the cross says a lot of things about who Jesus is. But namely, he's innocent. Jesus is the innocent one. We see this in a variety of ways in John's account. We see first that his teachings are without fault. He's... Innocent in terms of what he proclaimed to the people. He tells the high priest in chapter 18, verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. 
I have said nothing in secret. Jesus had nothing to hide. Everything he said was perfectly righteous and innocent. Vindicated before people, righteous in the sight of God, all his words and all of his teachings were perfectly innocent. His actions are also without, without fault. Pilate himself interrogates Jesus. And three times, in chapter 18, verse 38, and in chapter 19, verse 4, and in verse 6, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Innocent, innocent, innocent. Three times he says it. Holy, holy, holy. That is who Jesus is. He alone is righteous because he is the Son of God. He never once, never once puts on a false piety. He never once strays from God's law in rebellion. From the manger to the upper room, our Lord Jesus Christ is and always has been holy and righteous and innocent. He's so innocent that even this pagan governor recognizes the truth and is condemned by his own words. Finds him innocent. What is owed, therefore, to Jesus Christ, what belongs to him by right, is worship and honor and glory. But what he got was a cross. The message of the cross is that God's righteous punishment for sin, which is abominable in God's eyes, that this righteous punishment has been withheld from, from, from self-righteous people and from rebels. It's been withheld and poured out upon the innocent and righteous Son of God. Not by coercion. Who could coerce the Son of God to do anything? He is God in the flesh. Rather, it is because of His almighty love for sinners that Jesus has willingly laid down his life in order that you, self-righteous and rebellious at heart, might be called sons and daughters of God, innocent and righteous in God's sight, not because you're innocent and righteous in, in and of yourself, but because God has given to you the very righteousness and innocence of his beloved Son. You receive this gift by faith alone. There is no other way. You don't get that gift by trying harder. You don't get that gift by that false piety or putting it on or really feeling it. Whatever it is, whatever it is that makes you feel pious, this wonderful and greatest of gifts, the innocence of Jesus Christ, becomes yours by faith alone. You have not deserved it. You cannot earn it. You can't? It's a gift of grace. Loved ones in Christ, do not respond to the cross's message with a hardened heart. Both self-righteous people and rebels harden themselves against Christ. Give up on your efforts to impress God. He knows. He sees into the heart. He knows when you're putting it on. He knows. Give up on these efforts. Lay aside your own rebellion against him. 
Our Lord instead calls upon you not to get to him through good works and false piety and certainly not through rebellion, but rather he calls upon you to receive his death in your place by faith alone. Faith is trusting in him. It is, the, it is his finished work on your behalf. And again, you receive it. That's all you can do is to receive it. Trust him. Trust in Christ. And you will see the Holy Spirit begin to work that new obedience in you. The, uh, righteous behaviors and actions that do please God because they're rooted in faith in the one who has died for you and is truly innocent. Trust him and see as the old man is put to death and the new man is raised to life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he will teach you, the Spirit will teach you how to love God and love your neighbor. Brothers and sisters, the cross tells you who you are. It also tells you who Jesus is. Turn away from yourself and rest in him. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take the seed of this word and plant it in the good soil of our hearts. And in watering it through your powerful Holy Spirit, we pray that you would cause it to bear fruit, even a hundredfold, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You'll turn back with me to your order of service to page 7. We're going to uh, respond to the preaching of the word uh, in song. We're going to sing a a wonderful, ancient, and um, beautiful hymn called O Sacred Head Now Wounded, written by a great theologian of the faith, Bernard Clairvaux. Let's stand together and sing this wonderful passion hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Mm -hmm.